The title of our study today is A Man of Prayer. You know, when I think about men of prayer, I think one of the first people that comes to my mind is our brother Glenn. (laughs) But uh, as a child, when I thought of a man of prayer, the first person who always came to my mind was my pastor. And also... uh, a relative that I had that was very, very much in prayer. But today I'd like to share with you about one of my favorite prayer heroes in the Bible. And his name is Nehemiah. And I'd like you to turn with me to the book of Nehemiah. We're going to look at Nehemiah chapter 1. I know uh, that this is probably a familiar story to most of you. But I feel like every time I study the life of Nehemiah, I learn something else. Uh, There's so much to be gained in his story. We're just going to look at the first part of his story, and that is the introduction to his prayer life. In Nehemiah chapter 1 and verse 1, we find that uh, Nehemiah is not in Jerusalem. He's still in his land of captivity, but he hears word from those who had gone back to Jerusalem. And they, of course, his first thing was, give me news. What's going on? How uh, Ezra had already gone back. They'd already tried to build the temple. Uh, how, how are things coming at Jerusalem? And the report he hears is the survivors who are left are in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down and its gates are burned with fire. Can you imagine how he felt? Here his beloved city, Jerusalem, his beloved countrymen who have gone to rebuild it, and he hears the survivors that are left. Obviously that means not all of them lived but the survivors that are left are in deep distress and this wall is not built. They have no shelter. They have no protection from the outside nations. And oh, this hurts him so much because he knows that Israel is God's chosen people. This this place, uh, Jerusalem, was God's chosen place that he was to send the Messiah. And here it was in ruins. And the survivors that were left were so vulnerable that it was only a matter of time and they would be wiped off the face of the earth. And so in verse 4, we find, he says, When I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying to the God of heaven. Many days. We don't know how many days this is, but this is a prolonged period of time that he is fasting and praying for his people in Jerusalem. And here we have one prayer. Obviously, this one prayer is not the only prayer he prayed in those many days of fasting and praying. Uh, Nehemiah was truly a man of prayer, and I wish that we had more of his prayers recorded because I'm sure they would all be as uh, interesting and uh, something to learn from as this prayer was. But I would like to take the prayer that we have here from Nehemiah 
and just dissect it a little bit. So as Nehemiah is praying, he says, I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments, please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you now, day and night, for the children of Israel, your servants, and confess the sin of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Both my father's house and I have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant. I'd like to stop here for just a minute. We kind of have in his prayer an introduction, right? In his introduction, he's humbly, very meekly, quietly, humbly saying, God, just please listen to me, okay? You you sense a just a very small little mustard seed faith here. God, please just just listen to me. But the first thing that he does after asking God to listen to him is what? He confesses his sins, his family's sins, and the sins of the entire nation of Israel. And I'd like to write this down. We're going to look at seven points of Nehemiah and his prayer and his prayer life. So the first one is confess. Confessing not only his sin, but the sins he didn't commit either, right? His family, his extended family, uh, the entire nation of Israel. He says, God, we all have sinned. Please forgive us. And it's interesting, as we read through these verses of his prayer, you notice, whereas verse 1 he was saying, God, just, just please listen to me, right? He starts getting more bold in his praying to God. Like, as he is praying, his faith and his courage grew. And you see that um, in the wording and the just the, the tone of his whole prayer as it changes through the course of it. Um, his faith and his courage. So that's our second point. And as his faith and courage grows, he does a few more things. Let's look at the next few verses. Let's start at verse 8. Remember, I pray, the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though some of you were cast to the farthest part of the heavens, yet I will gather them from there and bring them to the place where I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. Now these are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. You notice his boldness is increasing through his prayer. And uh, we find two more things in what we just read. Uh, one is he's claiming God's promise, right? He says, you said that you will bring him back, right? So he's claiming God's promises. He actually starts arguing with God. 
You see this like in verse 10, especially he says, God, these are your people. This is your honor at stake. This is not me. I don't have a bone in this fight, but God, this is you. Please glorify your name, right? So he's actually like, uh, boldly, um, boldly, uh, giving his arguments to God saying, God, if you don't work in this instance, dishonor is going to fall upon you and your name and your house and and your people that you have chosen. What promises was Nehemiah claiming in this? In verses eight and nine, what, what uh, passages was he quoting? There's actually a quote there, isn't it? Let's look at Leviticus chapter 26, verse 33. Leviticus chapter 26, verse 33. You could read the entire chapter of Leviticus 26, because really that's, uh, it all fits in what he's quoting here. But he's specifically uh, in verse 33. It says, now this is God to Israel, if they forget his laws, and if they disobey his commands, right? He has this whole list of all the things that he will do. And verse 33, he says, I will scatter you among the nations and draw out a sword after you. Your land shall be desolate and your cities waste. So that is the first verse that uh, he quotes in verse 8 in Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 8. He says, I remember... The word that you commanded your servant Moses, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But, he says, I also know where you also told Moses this next promise. And that's Deuteronomy chapter 30. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 30. This is the verse that he was quoting uh, in Nehemiah chapter 1 verse 9. Deuteronomy chapter 30. And we're going to look at verses 1 through 5. This is the verse that Nehemiah was quoting. Once again, through Moses. Now it shall come to pass, when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God drives you. That's where Nehemiah is, right? He is among those nations where they've been driven. Verse 2. And you return to the Lord your God and obey his voice according to all that I command you today, you and your children, with all your heart and with all your soul. Verse 3, that God, the Lord your God, will bring you back from captivity. He will have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where the Lord your God has scattered you. And if any of you are driven out to the farthest parts under heaven, From there, the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will bring you. And then verse 5, Then the Lord your God will bring to you, bring you, excuse me, to the land which your fathers possessed, and you shall possess it. He will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. So this is the promise that Nehemiah is claiming. He says, God, we repent of our sins. We are doing our best to follow your counsels and learn from where we, our mistakes, why we were driven to captivity. And God, you have promised if we do this, that not only will you release us from captivity, but you will prosper us more than our fathers. And he's like, and look at Jerusalem. 
Are you prospering them more than their fathers? The city lies in waste. The gates are burned with fire. How can this be honoring your name, God? He claimed those promises because, I mean, God promised it, right? If God promised it, then in asking God to fulfill his promise, you're asking God to do his will. There's no question. Nehemiah's mind, he said, God, this is your will. And yet, as he's praying, he wonders, is there something else that I should ask for? Maybe as he's praying, it's like a plan begins to form in his mind. Maybe God is asking me to be the answer to my prayer. Maybe God is asking me to be that one to help his promises come true. And so we find in Nehemiah chapter one, we're back in Nehemiah again, verse 11. Oh Lord, I pray, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name. And let your servant prosper this day, I pray, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. What man? The king. And he explains that in the last part of the verse, right? He says, for I was the king's cupbearer. As he's praying, and he's been praying and fasting for days, as he's praying, God plants the thought in his mind, Nehemiah, you are the man that I am choosing to answer your prayers. And he says, okay, God, I will do it if you give me favor in the sight of the king. So that uh, is number four. As he prayed, God gave him a purpose to be a part of the solution. Obviously, he wasn't the whole solution because God was the solution, right? But Nehemiah says, I am willing to be a part in the solution. Use me, God. Like a Jody song earlier. Speak, Father, and use me. So after he prays this prayer, he gets up. Does anyone know how long it was before chapter 2 happens? Did you know it says? If you look at Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1, we find a year and a month. You see it there? It came to the pass in the month of... Does anyone know how to say that name? <laughs> I haven't learned all the pronunciation of all the names of the month. It looks like Chislev or something like that. Uh, it was the month of Chislev of the 20th year. And he was in the Shushan, which is where the palace is. In chapter 2, it's the month of Nisan in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. So now we know it's what's the 20th year of, right? It's the 20th year of the reign of King Artaxerxes. So chapter 1 and 2 happened in the same year, but not in the same month. And if you look at the calendar back then, you will find that four months transpired before chapter 2, verse 1. Four months after Nehemiah prayed that prayer, God, if you will give me favor in the sight of the king, I'm willing to be a part of that solution. Four long, agonizing months. 
And what did he do during that time? He patiently waited. But there was also something else that he did during that time. And uh, we actually find it. Uh, kind of. We have, to, we have to read it between the lines of the story to find a, a number six. But let's look at the story. Chapter 2, verse 1. It came to pass in the month of Nisan in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, that I took the wine and gave it to the king. Now, I had never been sad in his presence before. There's a, some serious implications here in that sentence. I had never been sad in his presence before. Obviously, he has been burdened with this for more than four months, right? Because he fasted and prayed for days, and then he waited four months. And as these four months have been going by, he has become more and more engrossed in sharing the burdens of his people in Jerusalem. He has been more and more depressed and sad and just longing for an opportunity to go and help relieve his people in Jerusalem. But he has up until now been able to hide all that from the king and put on a front every time he came in the king's presence. Do you know why? If he didn't, he would be killed. The king, remember, he's the king's cupbearer, right? The The job of the cupbearer was to tell everything that, tell the king, there is no poison in this cup. You're not going to die if you drink it. And everything is fine in your kingdom. If he came in and he looked guilty or sad or anything but exuberant and happy, immediately the king would be suspicious that there was a trap and he was going to be killed. So because of this, the king is pretty intuitive. Now, he's very observant of every face that walks in, right? Because, you know, he's guarding his life. And he was observant of the face of his cupbearer when Nehemiah came in that fateful day. And he was sad. He couldn't hide it. As hard as he tried to paste a smile on his face, he could not hide the look of grief that he was experiencing inside. And the king says to him, why is your face sad since you're not sick? He noticed there was, there was no uh, paleness or, you know, no fever. No, he wasn't coughing or, you know, a runny nose. You know, he didn't, he, there, there was nothing to show that he was sick, right? He was the perfect picture of health. And so he recognized, the king recognized, this is nothing but sorrow of the heart. Nehemiah, what's wrong? What's bothering you? And Nehemiah says, I became dreadfully afraid. Why? Because his life is on the line. If he does not give a proper answer to the king in this very moment, he's dead. He doesn't just lose his job. He's dead, executed instantly. And so he was afraid. So he said to the king, may the king live forever. I'm just going to be honest with you. Why should not my face be sad? When the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies waste and its gates are burned with fire. As Nehemiah begins to describe to the king the terrible picture that he had heard of what was happening in Jerusalem. How the, the people were dying of starvation. They were attacked by enemies. 
They did not have proper food. They did not have proper protection. They did not have proper homes to live in. They were dying out. And this was his people. He loved them. And as, and I know that the Holy Spirit was giving him the wisdom to know how to describe this to the king, but the Holy Spirit also touched the king's heart with a thread of sympathy. After all, these people were his subjects perishing in Jerusalem. And the king was so touched by Nehemiah's description of what was happening in Jerusalem that he gave one answer. He says, what do you request? This is the moment that Nehemiah had been waiting for, for four agonizing months quest. I mean, how often does a king ask you that, right? <laughs> what do you want? <laughs> Just say it, whatever it is, what's on your mind, what what do you need? And that brings us to our sixth point. Our sixth point is that Nehemiah was ready when the opportunity came. I personally believe, after reading and studying this story, that Nehemiah had done some pre-planning during that four months. I don't think he had just sat around and prayed every night that God would give him an audience with the king. I think he'd actually sat down and written a to-do list. If he ever had an audience with the king, this is what he was going to have to ask for, and this is the organization of how it would go. And I believe that he was praying over those plans. And you'll see why in just a minute. But we're just going to put here, ready when the opportunity came. Number six. So when the king asks his blanket question, what is your request? What does Nehemiah do? He prays. Once again, we have this man of prayer. Our first prayer that we read is he is on his knees in his quiet room, right? Just praying, begging, pleading with God. But now we have him in a face-to-face live situation, standing in front of the king. He didn't say, King, give me five minutes to go pray and I'll come back and tell you. (laughs) No, he prayed instantly and instantly heaven was there to help him. And that's why I firmly believe that he had been planning ahead of time because yes, God gave him the wisdom to know how to present his plan to the king, but I don't think he formulated an entire plan of action in that 30 seconds when he'd been spending four months praying about this, right? (laughs) So what does he say to the king? Verse five, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, I ask that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. Then the king said to me, with the queen sitting next to him. Okay, now we have like a bigger picture of this courtroom scene, right? The queen is there too. This is in a major, major, uh, I don't know. I can only imagine how nervous I would be in that situation. <laughs> God definitely gave him wisdom. The king says, how long will your journey be? Now, would Nehemiah have known how long the journey was if he hadn't thought about it before? No. He wouldn't have had the faintest clue, but it says it pleased the Kings to send me. And I set him a time. He set a date and a time. And he says, this is when I will leave. And this is how long it will take me to to get there. Furthermore, in verse seven, I also said to the King, if it pleases the King, 
Let letters be given to me for the governors of the region beyond the river, that they must permit me to pass through until I come to Judah, and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he must give me timber to make beans for the gates of the citadel which pertains to the temple, for the city wall, and for the house that I will occupy. Now, would he have known all that if he had not been planning? He knows the names of every person that he needs letters for. He knows how many letters he needs to get him through all the way through the territory. He knows the route he's going to take. He knows the name of the man who holds the timber for the king. And he knows exactly what he needs the timber for. He says, I need it for the gates. I need it for a house to build for me to live in because they don't have any extra houses there. And I need it for the temple and the city wall. He he has everything lined out. He said, this is exactly what we need. And I can only imagine that he must have given the king probably, you know, either written it down or already had it in his pocket, ready to go, right? He <laughs> said, this is everything we need, king. And the king granted me according to the good hand of my God upon me. Now imagine with me for a minute that Nehemiah had not planned ahead. And he was trying to think off the top of his head everything he would need. And so he rattles a few things off to the king. You know, maybe he forgot that he was going to need wood to build himself a house. Well, chances are he probably didn't have a second audience with the king. (laughs) He only had one chance, right? So either A, he wouldn't have had a house to live in. He would have been sleeping in a tent the entire time he was in Jerusalem. Or B, if he had ventured to try to come back in the king's uh, presence and say, wait, king, I forgot we can need a little more wood that I told you we did because I got to build me a house too. King was like, wait, you're not the man for this job. You don't know what you're doing. You're not planning ahead. I'm going to find someone else. Never mind. Forget the whole idea. The burden of responsibility that rested on Nehemiah was fulfilled to the letter because he was a man of prayer and a man of action. I forgot to write number seven. Number seven was obviously a quick prayer when the opportunity came, right? God answers our prayers whether we are on our knees or in an emergency situation. So we have our seven points of Nehemiah as a man of prayer. We have him confessing sin. We have his faith and courage growing through his prayers. We have him claiming God's promise. We have God planting a purpose in his mind as he praying to be a part of the solution. We have him patiently waiting four months, right? We have him ready with an action plan. When the opportunity came, and when that opportunity came, his quick prayer for help. How many of you can resonate with Nehemiah? How many of you can it be said, he is a man of prayer, or she is a man of prayer, because they are people of action? You know, we are told that Nehemiah didn't just stop with his duty of just praying to God for help. God, please take care of Israel. I'm so sorry that they're they're in misery, you know, but find somebody to help them. 
He didn't just stop with that. He united his petition in prayer with holy endeavor, putting forth earnest, prayerful efforts for the success of the enterprise in which he engaged. Careful consideration and well-matured plans are as essential to carrying forward God's work today as it was in the rebuilding of the sanctuary and Jerusalem back then. You know, God doesn't ask us to just pray. He says, pray in faith and work with diligent and provident care. You will encounter many difficulties and Sometimes we just, sometimes we hinder God from answering our prayers. Have you ever thought of that? We hinder God from answering our prayers because we're not willing to work for them. We're not willing to do with what we pray. So if I was to summarize what prayer is, I would summarize it in three words. When we have something that we need God to answer, this one doesn't work. Let's try another one. Prayer, effort, and planning. Are we willing to put the effort and planning behind our prayers? Are we men and women of prayer today? In closing, I'd like to share with you a quote that has been a huge blessing to my life for many years. And uh, it's from the book called Patriarchs and Prophets, page 509. If you want to go home and read it, I encourage you to read it again because uh, it's powerful. The secret of success. So we all want, right? The secret of success is the union of divine power with human effort. The union of divine power with human effort. Those who achieve the greatest results, like Nehemiah, are those who rely most implicitly on the almighty arm. The men of prayer are the men of power. And if I was to phrase that today, back then men met men and women, I would say the men and women of prayer are the men and women of power. Is that what you want? Is that what you want to be said of you? Father, this is our prayer. To be like Jesus. To be like Nehemiah. To be men and women of prayer. To be doers and movers and shakers in your cause. Because, Father, it is through prayer that we can have your power. Lord, I ask that you will teach us how to pray and that you will teach us how to live and work. And Lord, we just thank you that you long to do this and you are just waiting for us to ask for it. We thank you for this in Jesus. Amen.